So, good morning, and like um, Chris said, we have another episode of Mark this morning. Don't tune out if you think you won't know the storyline. It's going to be okay. But if you want to catch up, it's available, and you can binge listen on the Freedom Church website to all of the preachers. My name is Amanda Bennett, but that's only been my name for 19 years now, when I became bride to Malcolm Bennett. But before that, I was Amanda Bowles. Do you know, like Camilla Parker Bowles, but no relation. Um, And, you know, with the wisdom of age and with the 2020 vision of hindsight, I realized that that name change was so much more than a change of name. Had I known that, I might have turned and ran. But I realized that, you know, my status changed immediately. If it were in the days of Facebook, I would have taken out my phone and I would have changed my status from single to married. My family enlarged immediately. I was already part of the Bowles clan on my father's side and the Wilsons on my mother's side, but now I was also part of the Bennets. And um, some of them I didn't know yet, but that didn't make them any less family. And they were a very different family to mine. They took some getting used to. My allegiance changed. You know, my allegiance was now to my husband. It wasn't to my mother anymore. There was a new exclusivity to the relationship that hadn't been there before. And that meant that there were things in my life that were going to have to go. There were things that I was never going to do again. Mrs. Bennett would never again meet an interesting guy exchange phone numbers, and arrange to meet up for a date. That was never going to happen ever again. Mrs. Bennett, there were different expectations of her. There were different responsibilities to being Mrs. Bennett. And um, I was willing to accept these because I loved him, not because I was scared of him, not because he was holding me to ransom with some kind of threat, but just because I loved him. And um, if you are married or have been married, you will know that um, adapting to the new relationship, never mind the in-laws, it doesn't come easy. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come quickly. Mistakes are made on both sides as you argue over sandwiches and who's going to hold the remote and what is this toilet seat doing up and you (laughs) spent the money on what? And so... I became a bride then for the second time, uh, six years ago when I became a Christian. And um, this is the way that God would see me now, and I can't turn the paper. Paper is stuck. Because this is the way that God would see me now. God would see me as the bride of Christ. He would see me as part of a body of other believers who loved Jesus. And so again, my name changed as God put his name upon me and I was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and my status changed and my family enlarged and my allegiance changed. And there was this new exclusivity, but this time to Jesus. The problem was no one told me the second time. No one told me what the church was. No one told me what the church's purpose was. No one told me that the church didn't exist for me, for my personal gratification and edification. Nobody told me that. I was unprepared. But fortunately, the disciples were also unprepared for their role 
in um, this upcoming thing that was going to be called the church. And Jesus had to prepare them as well. And so they share with us this morning a really helpful testimony. So if you have got a Bible with you this morning, would you turn to Mark chapter 9 and keep it open with you? We are only going to come up close and personal with verses 38 to 50. But just to appreciate and enjoy the context, we'll start reading from verse 30. And I am going to read from a new King James Version, old school, I know. But I happen to like the way the new King James lays out these verses. So I'll read if you let me. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples, and he said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is dead, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed amongst yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed amongst themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Then John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon after speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone who will be seasoned with salt, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. So it's helpful to start there so we know who's talking. So it's Jesus talking to his disciples. He's not talking to the crowds anymore. He's not talking to this mix of people who were just curious onlookers, maybe potential believers, but also those who were dead against him. He's talking to his disciples. And he is talking to all of his disciples. Because if you just gig in at verse 38 like I did, you, could, you, can, you can think that it's only a conversation between John and Jesus. 
And you can imagine John speaking very proud, pridefully, Jesus. We saw a man casting out demons. Don't worry, we handle it. We dealt with it. You don't have to do anything, just keeping you in the loop. But actually, when you read it in context, it's more likely that John was sitting there and he was listening and the pennies were dropping and he was listening to the words Jesus was using and he was thinking, oh, receive children in my name, sugar, better check this. And so I prefer to think now his tone was more, Jesus, we saw a man casting out demons the other day. We stopped him, but he was doing it in your name. So now I don't know. I don't know if I did the right thing. And um, it sets the time, so it's before Jesus died and rose, and it's before Pentecost when the church is actually going to become a thing, uh, when Jesus, when God pours out his Holy Spirit on everyone. And at verse 30 sets Jesus' purpose. Jesus has secreted his disciples away because he wants to prepare them for what is to come. And one of the things that is to come is that they are going to become church founders and church leaders. So, the situation is this. The disciples, I come across a man, another man. He's not one of them. He's casting out demons. It's a good work. He's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Excellent motivation. And yet the disciples, they stop him. Yeah? There's swift, decisive action. Stop it. There is no investigation, no yellow card, no verbal warning, no consultation with Jesus. It is a matter of you stop this now. And it's ironic that the 12 men that Jesus has handpicked to spread the gospel, to spread the reality of God's kingdom, they aren't spreading, they're stopping. And it is their understanding of who us is that's stopping them. Their problem with him is he doesn't follow us. To them, us is the 12 disciples. Us is not anyone who would believe in the name of Jesus. And because to them, us is them 12, they don't see the man as a brother. They don't see him as somebody to be included and embraced and encouraged. What they see is an imposter, an imposter who must be stopped. And so their very understanding of who us is is going to render them useless to complete the mission that they have to come. And you know, had Jesus allowed this way of thinking to continue, then the gospel really was on a trajectory to going nowhere. At best, the church would have been a secret society. At worst, it would have died with the disciples. And you know, if that had happened, no one would have been saved after that. We wouldn't have been saved. And once again, the pages are stuck. And so their thinking, their understanding had to do a complete 180 degree turn. There was some radical transformation that had to happen. Because the disciples, they were Jews. And they would have been very, very familiar with what we now today know as the book of Numbers. And they would have been really, really familiar with number six when God had instructed Moses to instruct Aaron and his sons to put the name of God on the people of Israel and bless the people of Israel. But now a time was coming when God was going to put his name on anyone who would believe in his son Jesus. And they had to get their heads around that. And so Jesus says, don't stop him. Because whoever performs a miracle in my name can't then turn around and speak ill of me. Because if he is for us, then he's on our side. Jesus lays down some clear lines. There's no us to follow. There's Jesus, and then there's us. 
and us is really a we. It's all of us who today believe in Jesus because it is all about Jesus, literally. It is Jesus who is God the Son and the Son of God. It is only ever Jesus who could and would and did die on the cross to save us. It is only the name of Jesus that offers us eternal security. It is to the name of Jesus that God has given the name above all names. It is at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow. It is Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. And it is Jesus who is going to come back for his people. There is no us. There's only one to follow. And his name is Jesus. But there was some radical thinking that had to happen in the disciples for them to be able to appreciate that. And um, there was some radical transformation in the way that I had to think about the church. Um, so going back to February last year, I was at a church weekend away with another church, and um, the man who was speaking was saying, it was, he was encouraging our church really to be a fishing fleet rather than a luxury cruise liner. And he was saying, so what's your, how are you doing in, in your fishing mission? Are you rocking the boat or are you rowing the boat? And in that moment, I realized I wasn't in the boat. <laughs> See, no, no one told me there was a fishing trip, so I never got in the boat. Because to my mind, the church wasn't a who, the church was a what. The church was the place that I went to on a Sunday. It was the building where I had my season tickets, where I went and I sat on that side of the church in the same row, and I had my seats. I had my I had my seats, I had my exclusive membership to all of the events that were happening. I enjoyed the church breakfast. I didn't have to cook it, I didn't have to do the dishes. I enjoyed all the outreach events. They were fun for the family. It was entertaining, it didn't cost me nothing. And I enjoyed all the church had to offer me. But that's what it was. It was that place where I, I had I had my season tickets. And all the other people around me, I didn't see them as a family. I didn't see them as a who. They were just my fellow season ticket holders. So I never saw within them, I didn't know that the church was a who, that actually it was a body, a living body, a living organism, a living vehicle to be able to share the love of Christ, to share the power of Christ in a world that was dying. So I was just this passive recipient. And so that's my confession this morning. And so I wonder for you, what radical thinking needs to happen in your thinking about what the church is and what its purpose is? You know, where does the Holy Spirit need to renew your mind so that we can go together and spread this message of God? So... I wonder if the disciples, they had trust issues. Maybe they didn't trust the man. And from a worldly perspective, it's reasonable, isn't it? From a worldly, they didn't know him. They didn't know who taught him. They know it wasn't Jesus who taught him. And thank you, Jenny, for reminding us about the importance of keeping a godly perspective. But from a worldly perspective, it was very reasonable to stop the man. He was a risk. He was unpredictable. They didn't know what he was going to say. They didn't know what he was going to do. Maybe they didn't trust Jesus. All-powerful, all-knowing Jesus. Maybe it was him they didn't trust. Maybe they thought it was their responsibility to vet all the believers before they brought him to Jesus so that they could defend and protect Jesus. And it's incredible how 
gentle and how patient and how slow to anger Jesus is when it comes to his people. Because I'm fed up with them by now. I'm shouting at the Bible. But, you know, Jesus doesn't get cross with them. Jesus reassures them. He says, I've got this. I am not deaf or blind or ignorant. I see everything. And he says to them, anyone who does anything for anyone in my name, even if it's a cup of water, I'm watching. I see it. I will reward it. But anyone who tries to mislead my people, I am not unwilling to take drastic action. I will take drastic action. And we have no context today for the imagery that Jesus uses to to kind of portray the the drastic action he's willing to take um, because we buy bread from a shop. But in those days, they would have been very familiar with a millstone, a big concrete round thing that crushed grain to make bread and other things that you make with grain. And they would have been really familiar with the, the Roman and the Greek lynch mobs who put this big concrete onto somebody's neck and then threw them in water. See, Jesus is not unwilling to take drastic action to protect his own. He takes the spiritual well-being of his people really seriously, but he will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. But you know, this man, this man was doing nothing wrong. This man, he didn't need correction. This man did not need rebuke. There was no need for an intervention. See, this man, he would have been following in the crowd. He would have been listening to Jesus teaching in parables, those seemingly earthly stories that hid within them spiritual meaning. But this man had ears that would hear. This man would have stood on the outskirts of the crowd watching Jesus and just in faith copied what Jesus did. Just in confidence that there is power in the name of Jesus And that was without any kind of one-to-one personal coaching with Jesus. You know, had the disciples seen this man as a brother, had they welcomed him just in trust that Jesus would welcome him, then they could have gained an asset, not only for the kingdom, but for their group. Do you know what John could have said? John could have said, wow, that is phenomenal that you can cast out a demon. Do you know what? Jesus is trying to teach us to do this. It's not working out so well. The other day, me, Peter, James, and Jesus, we had to go on a message. We came back, and those nine, because I wasn't there, but those nine, they tried to cast out a demon. To be honest, it was a show. (laughs) Jesus had to take over, and he wasn't pleased. But you would be such an encouragement. Come and meet Jesus. They could have, when they looked at his actions, seen a man with such utter belief in Jesus, they could have brought him in from the crowd. They could have shared with him everything that Jesus had told them and taught them up to that point. They could have helped to equip him for even greater works. They would have gained somebody who could cast out demons without any further training. The community would have been blessed because those people would have been free from demon possession by his actions. And you know what? The job would have been a good one. And so I have to ask myself, who am I missing? Who's out there in the crowd? Which baby Christian am I missing? Who's in the crowd? Just showing utter belief in Jesus. Who can I come alongside? Who can I encourage? Who can I equip 
to be able to spread this gospel of Jesus. And who should you? So, so far, we have seen the, the disciples take some drastic action against another believer. We have seen Jesus say, hold it, if there's drastic action to be taken, I'm going to take it. And so now he turns to the disciples and he says, if you want to take drastic action, it's against your own sin. And so what wonder was he referring to pride. Because a couple of verses before, the disciples had been arguing about who was the greatest. So did the disciples think too highly of themselves? Did they think that they brought something to the table that Jesus needed? Did they think that Jesus had headhunted them because they had the special ability that would plug a hole in his dream team? So the day when they saw this man accomplish something they couldn't possibly think, hold on, it's only me who's supposed to do that. Who gave you the right to do that? On the other hand, did they think, oh, am I in danger of losing my position in this dream team? Because potentially he could outperform nine of them. And you know, have they acted in recognition of a brother? Have they acted in recognition of Jesus' divinity? And had they acted in humility? They would have had no need to compare themselves to him, to compete with him, to try to surpass him. No, they would have been free just to love him, just to encourage him. And so it's remarkable how when Jesus is, is, is dealing with these people, he is patient and he is kind and he is merciful, but he is ruthless when it comes to sin. And there's a lesson for me right there because often I am irritable with the person in front of me, not the sin that is manifesting. And when it comes to, to speaking to sin, he is not subtle, he is not gentle. It's fighting talk. There's extreme imagery, extreme language to convey this extreme seriousness of the situation, the gravity and the consequence of sin. And he says, cut off your hand, your foot, gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin. And he was not telling the disciples to self-mutilate or self-harm. Neither is he telling us today, thank God, because all of us Christians would be a pile of mincemeat. There would be no more bits to chop up after all our sin was out. There would be no way. But he is illustrating and amplifying that we need to take action against sin in our lives. And would you notice he doesn't say, if you think your brother's hand is causing him to sin, cut his hand off. He does say, cut your own. Deal with, deal with your own sin. Do you know the disciples, they were concerned, the man doesn't follow us. And Jesus makes it clear that actually... We follow him. And the word follow implies there's going to be a journey and then there's going to be an end destination. And so if we follow Jesus, the end destination is heaven, eternal life. But if we follow men and we follow the world, then that end destination is hell. It is eternal death. And that is the, the, the image that Jesus is trying to convey when he talks about the worm that never dies and the fire that is never quenched. We have no real context for that today. But if we had to step back in time and we lived in Jerusalem, we would have known that outside the city walls in the Valley of Hinnom, there was the tip. 
And that's where all the rubbish went and the dead carcasses. And so there were always fires burning there, night and day to burn the rubbish. And there were always maggots there feasting on the waste. And that is an image that Jesus uses to illustrate hell for them. And they would have been familiar with that. Do you know, the disciples were soon going to be faced with this choice. That you know, Jesus knows he's heading to Jerusalem and he's going to die. And the disciples are going to have to choose between life and death. And we know that he live and choose life and one he chooses death. But for those 11 who are going to choose life, they are going to be part of a called out people, part of the church. And they were going to be ambassadors for God, for his kingdom, for his gospel. They were going to live to glorify God because God had set them apart for him. He had set them apart from sin. Do you know the disciples, they didn't know that they weren't conforming to Jesus' will when they stopped the man from casting out a demon. When they were consulting with one another, they were doing all right. It was reasonable. It's not till Jesus steps into the conversation to say, don't forbid him, that they realize they are not conforming to Jesus' will, which is what sin is. Not the doing of bad things, but not conforming to the will of Christ. We only recognize our sin when we come into the presence of God, not when we come into the presence of people. And so my favorite um, gospel singer, C.C. Winans, says, it's really easy to stop the fall after pride. You just stay low. You just bow down in worship to God and you just stay there. And then you don't have to fall. And, you know, being the sinner that I am, because I often have this with Paul, I say, Paul, you say you're the worst sinner, mate, you didn't see me in action today. <laughs> but I have to prioritize just coming into the presence of God every day, just putting his word to work by the power of the Holy Spirit and saying, search me, Lord, show me my heart and speak what's true. And so I wonder when's your appointment, when's your date with God? When you get to come, just you and him, come into his presence and say, speak to me what's true of me, to me, Lord. Now Jesus closes this conversation with some cryptic words. And my friend Julie says, while the Bible is equally true, it's not always equally clear. And um, there's some curious words that he ends this with that Bible scholars are divided on. Everyone's got their own opinion, so that means we are free to form our own opinion, guided by the Holy Spirit. But for me, in the context of this conversation with the disciples, I take these curious words as encouragement, as reinforcing of our purpose as his body here on earth. See, Jesus says, for everyone will be seasoned with fire. And because he uses the word um, seasoned, which is to make something more tasteful rather than destroy it, or making it fit for purpose, if you, you have to season wood before you use it for a building. And because he's talking to believers, I believe that the fire that he's referring to here is the trials that we will go through as believers, the trials that we will go through that will refine us. You know those times when you are made redundant and you think, I can't support me anymore, and you have to look to God and ask him, and then he does provide, and you realize that he is a God who will keep his promises, that when he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, he means it. 
Do you know when a relationship breaks down and you think, how am I ever going to manage this on my own? And then he teaches you that he is actually all you need. Those painful, painful things in our lives that just burn off all of our wrong thinking, our wrong practices, and just bring us to the bottom of the barrel, which is God is all that we need. We are always being heated and reformed and heated and reformed. We are being made perfect. God is not in the business of making us the best version of us that we can be. He's in the business of making us perfect like his son, Jesus. And that is going to take our entire lives. And I believe Jesus is saying to the disciples, yes, you are going to make mistakes. You are going to get things wrong, but there's grace for purpose. And so maybe we can be kinder to ourselves and to each other because our God would give us grace. Jesus says every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Now salt is not so important for us today because we have fridges and freezers and 24-hour shopping. But salt in Jesus' time was, some, it was a preservative. It was meant to stop food decomposing and from decaying. And the disciples were going to go on to be living sacrifices as we are today, living sacrifices So when we divert anything of ourselves, our time, our prayers, our money, away from our pleasure towards something that would help another believer or help somebody else come to Christ, then we have stopped the decay in their lives and in ours. Do you know on a Friday night when I'm driving home from work and I think, oh, I'm glad this week is over. I've given everything of myself to everyone else and today this is for me. It's Domino's and Frank's Red Hot Wings and three seasons of the man in the Iron Castle, stay away from me world. (laughs) And somebody rings and says, I'm really struggling. Can you come now? And I say yes, and I look longingly at my iPad and think it's another day. I will have stopped the decay in their life. I would have stopped them spiraling into despair, looking away from God. But I had to stop the decay in my own life. Because, you know, Saturday morning, I think, you fat cow, what did you do sitting there for all those hours eating chicken wings? (laughs) Thank you. Jesus says, salt is good. But if salt loses its flavor, how will you season it again? And I believe that's him urging us urging us really to keep ourselves set apart for him, to set ourselves apart from sin so we can be effective in taking his message out into the world so we can spread love and life and truth. Do you know people, they won't read the Bible, but they will read us. And when they read God's people, what will they see? Will they see heartless condemnation? Or will they see forgiveness and love? Will they notice that we are different from the rest of the world? Or will our behavior just be the same as everyone else? We are called to be different. We are called to be salt. And Jesus says, have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. We are each one of us here a preservative, a preservative of life. For everyone who we meet who is not a believer and who believes we have stopped their their eternal death and we have helped Jesus, that we have helped them see Jesus and so they have eternal life. We are to have salt in ourselves. 
Do you know, have you ever had the, the thing where you work at, you're at work and, 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 and you go into the canteen and there's a, there's a discussion and as our Millie would say, the air is blue with the language that's used? Have you ever had that? Just me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And 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 then you walk in the room and people start to apologize. They say, I'm sorry, didn't see you were there. And if you like men, you think, I don't want to be the face of condemnation. I say, it's all right. It's all right. But actually, just the presence of the name, just the fact that they know that I'm a Christian stops that. It preserves goodness. It preserves someone's dignity. I am no longer apologizing for that. I'm not saying it's okay because I have been a preservative. And you know, in a world where everyone is worth it, everyone has their own opinion, everyone goes their own way, it's, it's always at the expense of peace with one another. Because everyone is holding on to their own opinion, so there's never any peace. But as a church, that's not what we should be like. It's not what we should look like. We should have peace with one another. And so today, it is Remembrance Sunday. And as I've been remembering, you know, just the, the unnamed thousands who gave everything they had to give us the freedom that we have today, I was wondering, what if the, the big wigs, you know, the presidents, the prime ministers, those people, what if they signed a peace treaty and then they ran away together to like a desert island and they never told anyone else that there was peace? And the soldiers, they would have kept on digging trenches, they'd have kept on seeing the other side as enemies, they would have kept on killing one another, taking prisoners of war, and the wives of these soldiers would have been at home and they would have lived in fear of the day that the phone was going to ring to say that their husband had been killed in the war. They'd have lived in fear of, you know, how will I I see to the, the safety of my children? What if there were bomb blasts or the enemy invaded? And there were rations in wartime. You don't have everything you want, so they would have been scrimping and scraping and just making the best of a bad situation. And there were all of the children of the soldiers who would have grown up never having the presence of a father in their house, that they would have grown up not having a relationship with their father who was fighting on the front line for them. They would never have known the love of their father. And the heartbreaking reality is, I might need a minute. I actually, as a practice, never got through without an absolute meltdown at this point. <laughs> so I might need a minute. But the heartbreaking reality of it is that we live in a world that doesn't even know there was a war. That doesn't even know that the war is won. That doesn't know that fear and sadness and sorrow and death is nailed to the cross with Jesus. So they are living like they are at war. Billions of people killing each other, torturing each other, living in fear, not knowing that death is conquered, living like paupers because they don't know that they're children of a king, not knowing that Jesus' death gave them access, direct access to all the riches of heaven. There are billions of people today who live without knowing the presence of their father, who live without knowing the relationship of their father, without knowing the love of their father. But we know. God's people, we know. And we have a message for the world that they have to hear. Let's not let ignorance of who we are 
ignorant of what our purpose is, suspicion of each other, underestimation of our God, or pride, get in the way of taking that message to the world. Amen.